Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And this time we're going to pick up with an interview we conducted earlier this summer with author David McCullough. We got to talk to him about his new book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. And during the first half of this interview, we really kind of just talked about the book and how it was almost an unusual style of book. It covers so many people, so many different Americans who travel to Paris during this long, nearly 100-year span of time and accomplish a lot. Um, and we also got to talk to him then a little bit about his research specifically for this book. Um, a lot of it, surprisingly, took place here stateside. Yeah, we talked to him about some things like his inspiration, how he picked his protagonists, um, a lot of questions that focused on the book specifically. But we stopped the first part of the interview there, knowing that we had more to give you guys. But we wanted to give people a chance to pick up the book and be able to read it first. And we didn't want to give too much away. And we wanted Mr. McCullough's words here to be able to kind of add a little bit of context to to what you got from the book and what you already knew. And also, self we wanted to be able to take the chance to talk to him a little bit more about his own process, what really inspires him, and how he does his research and puts a book together. Not too selfishly, though, because I think it's really going to help all of you guys out there who are historians or amateur historians or just interested in conducting your own research. He gave us some 
really, really great tips if we're going to tease you guys a little bit here at the beginning of this interview. Yeah. So basically, even if you haven't read the book, I think you'll really enjoy this part of the interview. But that comes later. And first, we're going to get back to the greater journey. So the part of the book that I was most eager to talk about and to hear the author talk about was a chapter called The Medicals. In it, as the title suggests, Mr. McCullough focuses on the this little world within a world of the greater book, and it features hospitals, famous doctors, patients, of course, with all sorts of ailments. But his main focus here in this section of the book is the American medical students who come to Paris. There are people like James Jackson Jr., Mason Warren, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and where you really get to see how they come to Paris and really grow to love it. And not just the city, but the things that they're learning there. They get to attend these awesome lectures. They get to follow these illustrious doctors on their rounds and see them perform all these all kinds of procedures. But what really struck me as learning why they came to Paris to study in the first place. They came there because the education they could get in Paris was so far superior to what was available in America at the time. And it was really compelling, this whole examination of the differences between the two countries in this respect. And it really became a story of the history of the medical field, both here and there. But a big focus, a big part of the focus here was America, although it was a story about Paris, too. And so we really wondered how Mr. McCullough crafted this part of the story. How did he choose what to keep in and how much to leave out? So here's what he had to say about that. Well, that I could have written an entire book on just that subject. I could have written an entire book on the friendship and the, the uh, adversities they face between uh, 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 John uh, Samuel F.B. Morris and James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, I could have written a whole easily a whole book about Elihu Washburn and his experiences. But I think in many ways of all the subjects that uh, I had to happily undertake in this book, the story of those medical students has stayed with me, has um, strengthened my understanding of the times better than anything. Uh, there's several aspects of it. One, they, that particular subject also, as you just suggested, illustrates not just where France was in development of medical training and, med- and the practice of medicine, but how far back behind we were. And this is the case in all of these subjects. You're learning about where we stood proportionate to the rest of the world, uh, which I think is a healthy reminder. In the for example, we, we had fewer medical schools than there were states in the country, that most of the doctors in our country, this is in the 1830s, 1840s, really right up through the, our Civil War, uh, most of the doctors never went to medical school at all. They were trained by other doctors, most of whom had never gone to medical school. Uh, medical students didn't make the rounds of hospitals as part of their training. Uh, cadavers for dissection, dissecting purposes were illegal in many states. Consequently, the bodies that were available were available on the black market, which meant they were very expensive, which also meant that most medical students never got to dissect a human arm. First time they would ever start dissecting a human arm was on a living person. And, and at that time, there was no, not yet any uh, anesthetic, uh, any ether. It doesn't, didn't come in until late 1840s. Uh, the fact that most American women in that day 
uh, would have preferred to die, literally would have preferred to die than have a man examine their body. And since all doctors at that point were men, that meant a great many of these women died. It also meant that students never got to examine or make the rounds with a, a practicing physician, a teaching physician, of female patients, over half the pop human population, so that when they began practicing medicine, they knew next to nothing except what they had read in books about the female anatomy, the whole process of, of birth and the rest. And uh, th there were none of those social stigmas in France, either concerning uh, the availability of cadavers for dis dissection or the examination of the f female anatomy. And so, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said in one of his letters to his parents, he could learn more in two years there than he could in 10 years practicing medicine at home. So it's really interesting to learn about how he did craft that story within a story. And I think, Dublina, if that was your favorite part, mine was the account of the American minister in Paris, Elihu Washburn. And, uh, I mean, it's it's just, again, it is a story within a story. It's kind of this gripping central chapter in the middle of the book. But what really interested me about it, I mean, I, I enjoyed it so much that I flipped to the back of the book and started reading the source notes, and I came across a little note that mentioned this was an entirely new story. This this journal, this account of Washburn's was was new to historians. And so we clearly wanted to ask Mr. McCullough not only about how he felt about Washburn's account, but how the account came to light in the first place. And here's what he had to say. I should uh, say that I have been writing books now for more than 40 years and I have had the good fortune to come across material um, of a surprising kind uh, that had not been known before, uh, both in quantity and, and in small parts and pieces. And some of it has been very exciting, but never has there been anything quite like this. El Elihu Washburn, our ambassador to Paris, arrived on the eve of the Franco-Prussian War. And the Franco-Prussian War, which started in the summer of 1870, uh, was a, a disastrous mistake on the part of the French and really totally unnecessary for Europe. And the German army very swiftly uh, defeated the French army and marched on Paris, surrounded Paris, kept Paris under siege, and uh, proceeded to starve the city into submission. Uh, Elie Washburn was the only minister, diplomatic representative of a major power, who of his own choice stayed on, did not get out of the city, did not leave. All the others left. But he felt it was his duty because there were Americans still in the city to go through it all. After the siege ended nearly five months later, uh, there was a brief period of comparative peace and then all of a sudden, a horrific uh, civil war broke out in Paris, French killing French, uh, to a degree that's hard to imagine. It was as if all the latent evil, violence, sadism, and destruction that's part of the, Amer part of the human nature erupted like a volcano. 
And to have it happen in this most civilized of all cities, this most um, uh, temperate, supposedly, and educated, cultivated population, made it all the more god-awful. Well, again, Washburn stayed through the, the duration of it, and if he'd done only that, we would, he, would, he would be somebody we should need to know more about. But he kept a diary every single day. And that diary has been unknown up until just recently. As part of the process of work on this book, my research assistant, Mike Hill, found the diary, or rather a letterpress copy of the diary, in, of all places, the Library of Congress, where nobody knew about it. We then managed to trace the, the location of the original diary, which is up in Livermore, Maine, where Washburn came from. And so I was able to tell the story of this terrible tragedy, this, this bloody, violent spasm that Paris went through, from an eyewitness eyewitness account that's not only new, but is fulsome. These aren't just little jottings at the end of each horrific day that he went through. They are long takeouts. The whole text uh, transcribed uh, runs to more than 60 pages. And uh, uh, that, uh, that diary alone is a window on those times such as we've not known about before. And that's part of the excitement of doing history. New things do come to light. Uh, new treasures in the way of letters, diaries, memoirs uh, are found. And not just in a trunk and up in somebody's attic, but in some of the great repositories of treasures that are known to everyone. So it's so cool to hear Mr. McCullough talk about the joys of being a historian and talking about these little treasures like finding Washburn's journal. But it's even more interesting when you consider that McCullough didn't start out as a historian. He was born and raised in Pittsburgh, went to Yale, and I think I read that his first love was actually art. And then while he was at school, he got inspired to write, and he actually started out as a journalist, career-wise. So we wanted to know how he got his start as a historian, and here's what he said. Yes, I started out uh, as a writer for uh, magazines, Time and Life, and then I went to Washington during the Kennedy administration to edit a magazine for the Arab world. And I was young and very much over my head and trying to do seven things at once uh, and to learn as fast as I could. And part of the way I coped with it was to work on Saturdays. And one Saturday, with the help of my wife, Rosalie, I was at the Library of Congress uh, looking for material for a piece that we were going to illustrate in the magazine for the Arab world. And quite by chance saw a collection of photographs taken in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, after the uh, terrible a disastrous flood of 1889. I mean, I had grown up in western Pennsylvania, and I'd heard about it much of my life, the Johnstown flood, but I really didn't know what happened. And when I saw the uh, the, the scale of the, of the destruction and damage, the human um, tragedy of it in those photographs, I simply wanted to know more about it. What happened? How, how did this come to be? And, and uh, I took a book out of the library, and 
it wasn't very good. Uh, it, I, I had a number of questions that it didn't answer, and so I took another book out. And if anything, it was even uh, it was even less uh, satisfactory. And so I thought to myself, why don't you try to write the book that you'd like to read? And once I started doing the research, once I got involved, got my hands dirty in the in the archives and the rest, I I knew that that was what I, that was the kind of work I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And that was uh, more than more than 40 years ago. So I really liked Mr. McCullough's idea that he writes the book he wants to read. I think that's a that's a great way to pick your topic. And I had read earlier that that's really kind of how he settled on many of the topics he's written about, just personal interests. There wasn't enough information out there um, to read in an easy book form. He went, went out and decided to write it himself. So it certainly made us wonder what else was on his to-read list, as in what other books did he want to get out there and write and research? And we asked him about that. I keep a running list, a sort of a marketing list, if you will, of ideas. And uh, I guess the list probably numbers 25 to 28 different ideas at the moment. Um, which of those I may pursue uh, or whether some other idea will suddenly pop into into focus because of something someone says in a conversation such as we're having or something I read, uh, I don't know yet. Um, I, I love the adventure of finding out. It's like working on a detective case. And the, the wonderful thing about our human nature is our curiosity, which is, is accelerative, like gravity. The more we know, the more we want to know, thank goodness. So I've never undertaken a book about which I was an expert, a subject about which I was an expert. If I were an expert on the subject, I really wouldn't want to write the book because I already know uh, the subject. I, I love the idea of landing in a foreign continent or something. That feeling of starting off and thinking this is going to take me three, four, maybe six years, but think how much I'm going to I'm going to learn. That to me, I'm an I'm I'm not an, a trained a trained historian. I was an English major. I thought I would wind up writing I don't know novels or plays, um, but I love to read history. And when I started reading uh, compelling history by people like Shelby Foote or Barbara Tuckman, uh, I, I thought maybe maybe I could do that. Um, it's, it's so important for people, if at all possible, to do work that they love and to work with in a field where you are with people of a kind that help you to grow and, and broaden your outlook. I, uh, I'm always glad, of course, when my books uh, have uh, welcoming readership. I'm always pleased when people tell me how much they like this or that that I've written about. But the real reward, the real prize that goes with it is the work itself. 
And so I'm always a little sorry, a little down when it's over. And now for that really selfish question that we mentioned before, not just for us, of course, but for our listeners, too. We know that many of you out there are amateur historians. Or professional historians. Or professional ones. Maybe you studied history. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you work as an editor like us, or maybe you work as an accountant or somebody, something entirely different. But we wanted to know Mr. McCullough's personal advice for turning history from just an interest or a passion into a profession. And he did us one better. He gave us a five-point step-by-step list. And here it is. Oh, I could, I could really talk to you for a long time about that. And it's a wonderful <laughs> chance to tell, I hope, uh, some of your listeners a few things that I wish I had been told when I was starting. One is be sure you pick a subject for which there is more material than you think you're going to need because you do need more material. I would say the ratio is probably 20 to 1 of what you accumulate, what you know, uh, to what you finally put down on paper. It has to be that way. Uh, The second thing is to pick a subject that has a real story. And wherein the characters in the story, the protagonists and the secondary figures, recorded what they saw, said, did, so forth. An awful lot of life is talk. An awful lot of type of life is expressing the human um, the human side of our nature. Uh, dark or light, uh, in language. And you can't make that up if you're writing honest biography and history. You can't make up dialogue. I don't like to read in in a book of history or biography that as, the, as he walked from the old executive office building over to the White House, he was thinking about this or that. We have no idea what he might have been thinking about. Um, you, have to, you have to take it out of what's in the record as having been said, either in letters, diaries, or quotations from uh, transcriptions of trials, court transcriptions, or from newspaper interviews or accounts. You have to have a source. So you want to pick a subject for which there's lots and lots of material to work with. Think of it as processing ore uh, to make steel. You need an awful lot of it to make the steel. And secondly, uh, when you go to a library, or maybe this is thirdly, when you go to a library or an archive, remember that it isn't just the books that are in that library or the uh, rare letters or diaries in that library or the maps or the photographs that are of value. It's the librarians or the archivists. Talk to them. Tell them what you're working on. Have them think about where you would best look or what you need to know. That's why they're there. That's their job. I think one of the mistakes students and others make is they try to hide because they don't want to be embarrassed by it. They try to hide how much they don't know. Be very candid about what you don't know, what you're trying to find out, and that you need help. And time and again, those wonderful people that are in libraries, professionals, and archivists, 
will not only help you at that moment, but they'll call you up two years later and say, remember that question you asked me or that subject you were trying to find out more about? I just found something I think you'll really be interested in. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me, how indebted I have been to those uh, who help that way professionally. The other thing is ask questions of all kinds of people. Don't hide what you're working on. Don't keep it a secret. Talk to everybody you can about it because you never know who knows something that might be of help to you, that might be beneficial. And work, get down, sit down, and start writing. Don't try to do all the research and then write the book. Start writing when you think you've done maybe a third of the research because it's when you're writing that you begin to realize exactly how much you don't know and need to know. So therefore, it targets your research more efficiently. And uh, so I'm doing research all the time, from beginning to end. Uh, uh, Very often doing research when the book's in galleys or even page groups. I'm still doing research. And that's, that's part of the kick. That's part of the fun. The hard part is to tell yourself to stop researching because it is addictive. And uh, you have to say, i got to start writing. And just sit down, and in my, my advice is start at the beginning and, uh, and just proceed. Work every day. Don't, don't put it off. It's easier if you work every day. So I know Dublina and I were trying to take down notes while we were talking to him about these five tips and try to apply them immediately to our work. But I hope that they're also helpful to you guys out there who want to do more historical research yourself. And also, I I was kind of inspired by what he told us, too, about picking his career and and doing something he really liked. It was it was great to hear from from somebody and, and hear such kind of inspirational words. Yeah, and just that idea of creating something, you know, how he wanted to read something or see something out there and he couldn't find it, and so he created it himself. I mean, to me, that was the most inspirational part of it, is just, you know, having that motivation to do it. So hopefully we can all find a little bit of that. Definitely. So this is our second podcast of this interview, but we are definitely willing to keep the conversation going through social media, through our blogs, which are on the HowStuffWorks homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Also on Twitter, Missed in History, also on Facebook. So if you guys have picked up their book by this point and read a little bit, you can definitely email us or or comment in some way and share your thoughts. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, we would love to know how you felt about the book, what parts were your favorites. You can write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on social media, as Sarah said. And if you want to find our blogs, you can find them by searching off our homepage for them. Our homepage is www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future, Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple. Affordable. Reliable. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.